0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Christian Davenport, a reporter covering NASA and the space industry for The Washington Post. And I am so pleased to be joined today by Rob Meyerson, the CEO of Delaloon Space, and a board member of Axiom Space, which is wrapping up that historic mission to the International Space Station. We'll talk about that. In the broader space economy. But first, Rob Meyerson, welcome.
1: Thank you, Christian. It's such a pleasure to be here. Really uh, looking forward to this conversation.
0: Yeah, well, thanks so much for being here. We're thrilled. Um, Let's just start with the news of the day. I mean, this is a historic mission where you've got four private citizens, uh, not a single person working for the government, three passengers who have paid $55 million each for those rides to and from the space station, and then more than a week on the space station. I wonder if you can talk, Rob, about the significance of this mission.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, Axiom Space was founded in Houston, Texas by uh, Cam Gafarian and Mike Saffardini, who is the company CEO. And these two bring decades of experience working with and for NASA. And I can't think of a better founding team for a mission such as this. And and. And what Axiom is doing is building the successor to the International Space Station. So they have an exclusive contract with NASA to access the port on the ISS, which I think of as like a gate at an airport. And so Axiom's currently designing and building the first module of their private space station, and they'll launch it and attach it to the ISS in 2024. Uh, And then after that, they'll launch and add on three more modules over the next several years following that first one. And then by the end of this decade, the Axiom station will be complete and it will separate from the ISS and become its own free-flying space station. And it'll serve a wide range of missions for government and private industry customers and and private astronauts like this AX-1 mission. Um, What's significant about the AX-1 mission, as you noted, is that it's the first all-private astronaut mission. Um, These four astronauts that are on board include Uh, One Axiom employee, who's a former uh, highly experienced NASA astronaut, Michael Lopez-Alegria. The other three are private citizens, one American, one Canadian, and one Israeli. And um, in addition to this mission being, you know, the first four private astronauts, it's also the first time that uh, joint operations have been conducted between private astronauts and government astronauts, because there's significant research being done uh, re- research on human health, research on future space stations, self-assembly, uh, as well as uh, research on augmented reality and other, and other items. And so um, I think it's really, this mission is so exciting because it is a turning point for um, future commercial operations in low Earth orbit. And uh, we envision applications for, uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies, global companies, uh, doing research in space manufacturing. Uh, entertainment, marketing, and uh, as well as what's going on with AX-1, you know, private astronaut missions, so.
0: Yeah, and and they talked a lot about before this mission about the work they were going to be doing when they were up there. They said they didn't want to be called tourists, that they were going to be up there really working, uh, doing their science experiments. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the things they've been doing since they've been on the station.
1: Sure. Well, you know, just over the weekend there was a demonstration of uh self-assembly which is a research project called tesserae at mit media lab um as as far as i understand those experiments went well where they are testing out um uh, panels that will seek out you know float around in space and seek each other out and form a form a structure that could form a future space station uh they're doing uh as i mentioned they're doing research on heart health in microgravity. They're doing research on um, vision. Uh, they're doing research on spine health, uh, working with the Cleveland Clinic. Um, uh, they're doing uh, a holometric uh, uh, experiment testing out augmented reality. Uh, and then just lots and lots of STEM outreach, working with schools and organizations around the world.
0: And it was clear they didn't want to be seen as a burden and they saw themselves as trying to forge a path forward to let other people uh, come onto the station and have them be welcomed uh, by NASA. But, Rob, you know, I wonder if you could place this in some context, too. I mean, there's sort of a long arc of, you know, ordinary citizens thinking about going to space and it's been embedded in sort of our our culture and our consciousness. I mean, this is really pushing the boundaries of that. But I wonder if you could sort of place this in the broader narrative.
1: Oh sure. Yeah, that, that's a interesting um point. The, the I think of space tourism in a sort of a full full, as you called it, an arc a, a a full life cycle. You know, start out uh with terrestrial space tourism, visiting space museums, uh going to NASA visitor centers, uh traveling to watch rocket launches. Um then the next level of that is participating in things like zero gravity flights or uh, flying on a high-performance airplane or or operating in a centrifuge. And there's companies that are popping up now, like a company um, founded by uh, Jason Andrews here in Seattle called Orbit, which is going to do spaceflight training. And, um, and then there's the growing array of suborbital or near-space options like Blue Origin's New Shepard, um, Virgin Galactic Spaceship Two, and then the Space Perspectives uh, uh, balloon option, which... Uh, which are all interesting and will be available for hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to maybe a million dollars per, per ticket. And then last fall, we saw the indication of Inspiration4, which was a three-day mission on SpaceX's Crew Dragon vehicle. That, that flight was purchased by uh, Jared Isaacman. Uh, and one seat was, uh, you know, one seat was, uh, it was an auction, a, a charitable um, mission. One seat was given away to someone who worked at St. Jude's, and two other seats were, were, um, were given away via different mechanisms. Uh, and that mission was successful, and uh, Jared is planning to fly several other missions called the Polaris uh, mission. And then AX-1 here is the premium uh, experience. It's an eight-day stay at the ISS. Uh, in the future, that'll be uh, an eight or longer day stay at the Axiom Space Station, which, uh, which will, uh, you know, debut later this decade.
0: It just seems like there's so much momentum now in terms of human spaceflight. I mean, you'd mentioned the suborbital tourism flights, the Inspiration4 mission, the Axiom one, uh, and Jared Isaacman who funded Inspiration4 has now bought three more uh, flights with SpaceX. So I wonder, you know, we'll talk about the future a little bit more later, but I wonder if you could just, in terms of the space tourism and and private citizens going to space, what do you see as, as coming next?
1: Well, I think I think we're going to see a lot more momentum uh with the Blue Origin New Shepard mission. Uh they they've said they have uh, plans to double their flight flight rate this year and I think uh I think that's exciting. We we've, we've seen one flight already this year with uh with Gary Live from Blue Origin and George Neal, uh, formerly of the FAA. People that we in the industry uh know quite well, but also uh four other private citizens who uh who purchased their tickets and um and uh have, have really uh, valued that experience uh, that that opportunity to to um, see the earth from from up high from a hundred kilometers uh, see the atmosphere the thin thin limit of the atmosphere and then also uh, get an opportunity to float freely and, and experience that for the first time so I, I think we're going to see you know over the next coming years we're going to see a, a you know a continued continued growth um, uh, and you know, over a decades to centuries, type of uh, of a timeline, we'll will we'll eventually have more and more people, you know, eventually to the, the, the vision of millions of people living and working in space.
0: Right. And so you've mentioned that Axiom is, of course, working on uh, their own space station. This is a commercial space station, a private habitat that would uh, first dock with the International Space Station. But ultimately, the planning is is that it would replace the ISS, um, which is kind of remarkable if you think about that. But it follows the trajectory where NASA has been outsourcing to the private sector, first cargo flights to the International Space Station, sending up supplies and food and science experiments, then uh, human spaceflight to the ISS, which we've seen uh with uh, spacex and the commercial crew program and now flying private citizens but the fact that we now have you know uh, privately run habitats that are being developed that seems to me a whole different level uh and i wonder if you can talk about that for a minute rob
1: sure yeah yeah so so building the successor to the international space station there will be there will be several successors and um axiom happens to have the um the contract to access this port uh, on the ISS. So they're they're the only uh, company that is building onto the ISS, um, adding those modules on, in, in preparation for eventually separating and creating their own free flying station. the The modules will will have um, uh, support living. They'll have uh, bedrooms. They'll have eating areas. There's also going to be a research and manufacturing module. There's going to be an observatory uh, uh, that will. Um, have large windows and have the uh, opportunity to, to view the Earth from space. And then there will be a power and control module that will um, uh, be the last element that's added prior to separation. Um, the first uh, habitation module is being built um, over in Italy by Talos the structure. And then uh, Axiom Space is building out the subsystems, life support, propulsion, windows, and other, other items that will be integrated into, uh, into that module prior to launch in 2024. 20-
0: Can you talk a little bit about how the commercial stations would be different from a government you know run station where you have to partner with many different nations i mean in axioms materials you know we know that for example uh it's being designed by the famous french uh, architect and designer philippe stark and you know there's talk about the attention to detail and even it having a luxury feel is when i think about you know, going to space, I just, I just want to survive. I want to make sure I stay alive, but obviously that's <laughs> crucial to what Axiom wants to do, but they're taking it a step further. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, how a private station would be different than a government one.
1: Well, uh, that, that point about survival versus thriving in space is uh, we, we need to make that transition and get to the point where, where we're really thriving in space. And, um, and, and Axiom is going to, going to help us take that first step. The um, Um, The the ISS has been in orbit for more than 20 years. It's nearing the end of its life, um, and uh, we need to have a replacement. So NASA is um, funding, you know, through a small contract with Axiom and small contracts with three other companies, um, new development to ensure that there is at least one successor to the ISS by the end of the decade. And um, the key difference between these two, I mean, you know, this, this is... This is going to be in space. I mean, it's uh, yes. There are designers um, putting this together, trying to um, uh, think differently, create a create a different experience than than what what is uh, had on the ISS. And think about how the ISS was put together. It was it was designed by a, um, a cohort of international partners, um, and uh, from it was launched on you know uh, the the space shuttle. Russian Soyuz rockets um, um, and um, this this vehicle is going to be built commercially with you know a human centered design mindset um, that is a very important part of uh, of axioms design principles and their their design philosophy um, and uh, we're going to be thinking about the end customers uh, uh, in the beginning so uh, um, I think that that's one of the key differences I think another another key difference um, is that uh, at least with Axiom, each, each module is gonna be its own spacecraft. So uh, uh, you won't have to have two or more astronauts in spacesuits outside um, muscling these, uh, these modules into position. Uh, they'll actually dock themselves. Uh, and um, I think that's, uh, that's an innovation because it'll, it'll allow for, for reconfiguration um, as, as the needs change uh, for the space station over time.
0: And over the years, I mean, NASA has invested more than $100 billion into the International Space Station, and it's, you know, built it and operated it in collaboration with other nations. So what is the economic viability of a commercial station? I mean, what's the market? Who are your customers? How is that all going to work?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of money. Um, And and the, the ISS really cost that much to build because it was um built by that international national core the cohort of international partners but also it was launched by um more expensive um options like the space shuttle um uh, the space shuttle was used for much of the launch of of the space station uh and now you have lower cost options for launch the the cost of launch has come down you know 50 to 100% over the last uh 7 years due to competition uh reusability and other another um changes in the industry so um, uh, the ISS also relied on those professional astronauts to build it um, whereas future space stations are going to rely on things like self-assembly and lower cost launch and to bring the, the cost back down but uh, but that's the cost part of it and then the demand side you know is, is going to have to come from a whole range of other um, uh, customers and, and clients so in addition to Private astronauts. You'll have professional astronauts from other countries who don't have um, their own human spaceflight program. So uh, they could work with Axiom to fly people up to to the Axiom Station um, uh, as as a uh, which becomes a revenue stream for Axiom. The other revenue streams are are things like uh, research and development uh, and in space manufacturing, which I think will become more and more um, useful as uh, as the access to space is simplified through working uh, through a commercial partner Uh, and then i think there's other other markets like entertainment and marketing that really aren't accept accessible to a government facility like the iss because of priorities of, of crew time uh and the priority going to research but uh in the future we could see um in space uh movies being filmed in space sports um other things that that could be uh Primary users for a commercial um, private space station.
0: Yeah, in space movies, in space sports, in a weightless environment—that'd be pretty cool. i um, just one more quick one on this on the station. The White House is committed to extending the life of the ISS to 2030. There's been some obviously some tension with our main partner, uh, Russia. Um, NASA is looking to the commercial sector for the successor uh, to the ISS. I mean, will you be ready? in time to uh replace the iss
1: i i think i think we will you know uh each of you know axiom and the other companies that are that are building private space stations need to raise private money because uh because nasa is not going to provide the you know pay full freight pay the whole bill for for these like they did for the iss and they shouldn't um these uh these types of capabilities like uh Crew and cargo services, like you mentioned earlier, Christian, uh, should be services that the government pays for uh, so that the government's, you know, precious budget can go to to doing cutting edge research uh, and deep space exploration, you know, going to the moon and Mars. So, so, yeah, we will be we're we're building hardware at Axiom now and uh, we will be ready by the end of the decade to replace the ISS.
0: So, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, these space billionaires. I call them the space barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson. I mean, uh, Jeff is uh, putting in a billion dollars a year of his own money into Blue Origin, where obviously... Uh, you worked and, and were president there for a long time. But I wonder, I mean, what does it take to have a self-sustaining space economy where you don't have to rely on the government as the driving force or, you know, on these enormously wealthy individuals who have the wealth of, of a government? I mean, when do we get to the point and what will it take to have the self-sustaining space economy?
1: Yeah, the the, the so. so. Currently, you know, our space economy is what I call a a space for Earth economy. It's one that produces imagery, bits, and scientific discoveries for the benefit of of Earth. And we're really nowhere near creating that space for space, that in-space economy, that's self-sustaining. And to to do so is gonna require um, a much greater um, understanding of the impacts of, of the space environment on a variety of things that we make on Earth. Um, and the space environment is not just microgravity but uh, uh, thermal gradients extreme heat to cold temperature vacuum radiation and um, this is why the iss and axiom station will be key to creating this in space economy it's the first step so i envision global companies of all sizes using the space environment as a way to improve their products and their processes and once these benefits are well understood, we'll start to see the growth of in-space manufacturing, first building things that will be brought back to Earth, but later serving in-space customers.
0: Yeah, there's always so much attention, you know, on the on the billionaires and on human spaceflight, but really what's driving the space economy is- in large part is the satellites and this revolution and satellite technology that allows them to be smaller and more capable. And we're seeing these constellations of satellites where we're talking hundreds or thousands of satellites being put up into Earth Earth orbit to beam the internet down to ground stations. And obviously SpaceX is doing this with Starlink and Amazon just announced uh, earlier a huge deal where it's uh, bought 83 launches from three different launch providers all on rockets that have yet to fly, so Rob, I wonder what you make of that deal and what it says about this broader space economy
1: yeah this is the largest purchase of launch services in industry history, so there's a lot to talk about there and and the key point is the one you've already made, which is that all the launchers announced um, are brand new and haven't launched yet um, and to, to help understand the significance of that, look back in history um, to Recent new launchers, um, and just I, I did I did some research just as a um, a thought experiment. How long did it take for each of these rockets to get to twenty flights? Um, for the uh, the Atlas V and the Ariane Five, which are operated by United Launch Alliance and Ariane Space respectively, it took about seven years to go from first launch to the twentieth launch. Um, for the Falcon Nine by SpaceX, it took about five and a half years. And for Rocket Lab, a smaller rocket, the Electron, it took about four years to get to 20 flights. So um, it's not months, you know, it's years. And so for these new rockets to um, get that that haven't launched yet to get to their first launch and then get to their 20th flight um, to serve Amazon Project Hyper uh, is it? It's a um, you know, it's a big um, that's a that's a big big ask and these companies are going to be challenged to, to ramp up and get there. And I think it's a good challenge. I think the industry needs that kind of challenge. Um, with, because with this one announcement, Amazon has bought up, you know, much of the medium and heavy launch capacity um, for the next half decade. And so that last point is important as well, because there's still thousands of satellites being developed by others than Amazon, you know, other companies, commercial companies, government agencies, and they'll need to rely on other new launchers to get them to orbit. So I think this is, this is good news for new launchers in the industry, like uh, companies like ABL Space, uh, Relativity Space, and Stoke Space, who are, who are building either responsive or um, reusable launchers themselves, so.
0: And you know, what do you think are the biggest areas of growth going forward? And, and we see a lot of challenges in space too, not just with the economics, uh, or the engineering and the technical side, but with the enormous amount of debris that's out there as well I mean looking forward, what are some of the other sectors we should be paying more attention to
1: well i, I think you know the the debris problem you know space domain awareness or space traffic management is, is really going to be one of the grand challenges of our generation something that we really need to start spending some time on and it's not just uh, um, something that an engineer can go run some calculations and solve it's it takes diplomacy. It takes uh, um, countries working together, um, um, putting rules in place, and and, and abiding by those rules. Um, and so, uh, uh, I think that is a, a very important. Uh, it's also in, the technology is also important. Then there's there's space tugs and deorbiting devices that can be used to um, to ensure that uh, that that satellites at end of life will come out of orbit rather than just Float, float, around and, and become a barrier to other commerce up in space. Um, one area that I think is a really interesting for growth, and we're still, you know, just kind of touching the surface of, is geospatial analytics. Um, using data from satellites, aircraft, ground sensors to provide actionable data to organizations um, in government and industry. Um, we're we're now starting to apply um, AI and machine learning and edge computing to to this market to make it more and more effective, and we're seeing really creative new businesses that are there that coming up in that area. And I think they're going to eventually be essential to improving the efficiency of, of industries like agriculture and mining and insurance and others. Um, I think when we get into um, in-space infrastructure and cis-lunar, going to the moon, those are, those are things that are going to really need to be government-led. And so um, you know, there's a lot of exciting companies in those areas, but uh, the government is going to be the launch customer, the, the the anchor customer for those for quite a while until that in space economy can be developed, um, and 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 then they'll start to take off. And I see that as 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 you know something in the five to ten year time frame where that where those things will start to uh, those types of businesses will start to ramp up.
0: And what about the workforce? I mean, when you look back historically on the aerospace sector, there's a lot of ways in, similar to the defense side. But now, you know, so so digital uh, needs software programmers with these reusable rockets. I mean, I just wonder if you could, you know, give us a sense of what the workplace looks like, and do we have the talent base we need to build up this uh, space economy that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, uh, we 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 don't, and I. And I... I'd like to cover both the workforce and the industrial base because I think I think those are those are um, two very important parts as far as workforce you know um, we're not producing enough engineers we're also not producing enough builders you know people machinists technicians welders um, who are um, who who can help to to build the the hardware that um, that that we're designing and we do, we certainly don't have a diverse enough uh, workforce in aerospace so I, I want to see more support for um, programs for young people, like FIRST Robotics in the high schools and middle schools, um, that encourage and inspire people to go uh, into STEM STEM careers. And uh, and and like I hinted at earlier, college isn't the right choice for everybody. So encouraging people to step into these hands-on careers, learning learning those critical um, build skills like machining, welding, and uh, assembly and operations is important. Um, on the industrial base, I, I think it's um, you know, with the billions of dollars that are being invested in new rockets and new satellites and other capabilities, uh, I think we've we've long ignored um, the industrial base—the companies that actually build the parts, provide the raw materials, um, do the you know do the machining and the forging and casting—and um, that, and that industrial base is fragmented and it's unreliable. And 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 quite honestly, not every startup can afford to develop their own. You know build their own machine shop you know vertically integrate um not every company can do that so so we need a strong industrial base to support what's going on around america and around the world um and since leaving blue origin i've become um an angel investor and advisor to some exciting companies in this area um one of those is hermias which is doing hypersonics um those are vehicles that fly above mach 5 so uh Hermes is building reconnaissance aircraft and eventually transport aircraft, uh, but uh, but the the hypersonics industrial base is uh, uh, really in need of strengthening, and uh, and Hermes has stepped in and raised uh, one big contracts from the Air Force and raised you know hundred more than a hundred million dollars from from private investors. Um, another company that's really focused on that industrial base is uh, is Hadrian Automation out of Hawthorne, California, and they they're building the digitally enabled machine shop of the future um, and um, recently raised money from, from Lux Capital and Andreessen Horowitz. And then, and then finally, um, I'm doing some work with the University of Texas at El Paso, um, which has uh, built a coalition called El Paso Makes. And they're, they're investing in aerospace manufacturing and workforce training in the El Paso region. And so I've been advisor, an advisor to this group, but they brought in big industrial partners like Blue Origin. Uh, General Motors and, and Lockheed Martin, to name a few, and uh, uh, really excited about what they're going to build. So,
0: yeah, no, there's there's so much going on for sure. We could uh, fill up an hour easy uh, on this topic, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have uh, today. Rob Meyerson, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it.
1: Christian, I I, I really uh, really enjoyed it, and I would like to do a quick. Shout out happy birthday to my daughter, Lily, in Pittsburgh, um, who uh, will be home with us in a couple of days. But I just want to say happy birthday, Lily.
0: Well, as it turns out, it's my kids, my twins' birthday today. So I'll say happy birthday to Ann and Harrison. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.